Hello, and welcome to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast. I'm Mario Sakura, and this is the place where my co-hosts, TJ Dahl and TJ Ingracia, and I discuss movies through the lens of the Enneagram model of personality. If you like the show, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe, and join the conversation on our social media pages. For now, grab some popcorn, sit back, and enjoy the show. Hi, everybody, and welcome back. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about Enneagram Type 9 and two movies that uh, we really enjoyed watching again, and one of which answers the eternal question of what do paprika, salad dressing, and ground lamb have in common? So I don't think we're going to answer that question, but the movie I don't think we want the answer to that question. (laughs) So, all right. TJ, TJ, how are you guys doing today? Good. Not good. Sounding quite as sick as you. Yeah, if, uh, dear listener, my, uh, you know, as you know by now, my voice is a little bit deeper than normal. I am fighting a cold, so uh, hang in there with me. I'm doing my Optimus Prime imitation today. (laughs) All right, so um, the two movies we're talking about are Wonder Boys and Four Weddings and a Funeral. Uh, two movies from the 90s that I remember very well seeing when they first came out. Uh, actually, I think Wonder Boys was 2000 maybe, right? So, um, But it always felt like a 90s movie to me anyway. Um, guys, what did you think of these movies? Had you seen them before? Let's start. TJ Dahl, had you seen these movies before? Yes, I saw them both when they were new. I saw Four Weddings and a Funeral in the theaters because it was a sensation. It was a sleeper hit, mm-hmm. and it became really popular. So the- yeah. Not the kind of movie I would normally see, but just the buzz about it was so strong that I went and saw it in the theater and really liked it. And then Wonder Boys flopped. And it was one of those movies that I heard about a lot like I heard about Edge of Tomorrow where somebody wasn't on a list because I wasn't on the internet at the time, but somebody just said to me, that movie's a lot better than you would think it would be. It's worth your time. As is Election. So I I rented both of those on VHS and watched them on the same night and love them both to this day. That's a good night of movie watching. Yeah. Indeed. All right. TJ and Gracia, how about you? I had not seen either of these. Four oh, really? Weddings is one of those like it's it's <laughs> like it's a crime that I haven't seen it up until this point. Just kind of got lost in the shuffle. But yeah, I really enjoyed both of them as well. Uh-huh. Okay, good, good. And even though they were only released six years apart, Four Weddings feels like it was about twenty years older than Wonder Boys. Just it, the way they filmed it or whatever it was, it just feels very old. It it, it did feel older. It it felt kind of contemporaneous to Withnail and I to me, right? I mean, I couldn't help thinking about the two movies together, even though they're exceptionally different movies. But uh, still, they, they there was just something about them that felt a little, I don't know if it was the cinematography or what, that just felt kind of similar and uh, dated. Um, but uh, we'll, we'll get into the movies in a minute. We won't get too far ahead of ourselves. But we are talking about Enneagram Type 9. And um, Type 9 is what we call striving to feel peaceful. You know, a lot of other teachers will refer to it as like the peacemaker, the peacekeeper, that sort of thing. And trying to maintain a sense of peacefulness is the preferred strategy. So nines are people who are striving to feel peaceful, right? They're trying to maintain a sense of inner calm. They're trying to maintain a sense of stability and um, consistency in their environment. They're famous for being uncomfortable with conflict. And it's interesting because every time I work with a nine, I ask them about conflict. And they'll never say that they avoid it. 
right? They'll never come out and say, oh, yeah, I, I'm, I avoid conflict. They'll just say, eh, you know, it just doesn't seem to make sense. You know, I always look for compromise. I look for the easy way to do things. I mean, why have, con you know, why have conflict? So it's not that they're necessarily afraid of it. It's just that it disrupts their state of inner calm. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that they don't lose their temper. And in fact, um, at least in uh, Wonder Boys, there's a really good example of a nine kind of finally, you know, having as much as he can take and snapping a bit. Um, you know, so you will see these bursts of temper in nines. But for the most part, they're nice, easygoing, etc. The connection to point three is what we call the neglected strategy. Now, that strategy is striving to feel outstanding. Doesn't mean that nines don't want to be outstanding. In fact, I work with a lot of really senior leaders um, who are Enneagram type nine. Um, I think there's a surprising number of nines at the top of organizations because they're as ambitious as any other Enneagram type. And since they're really good at creating harmony and balance and uh, calm around them, they tend to be pretty good leaders, right? They make people feel okay. The support strategies at point six, striving to feel secure. So you'll start to see kind of anxiety brewing in nines when their uh, peacefulness is disrupted and they can become kind of vigilant for things that are on the horizon that might disrupt their uh, peacefulness as well. The core qualities related to point nine, benevolence at point nine. And we introduced these in our last episode when we talked about edge of tomorrow. And like I mentioned in that episode, the three, six, and the nine are all dealing with kind of the same fundamental issues, right? They're all connected by the same lines on that triangle, but it's in a disproportionate way and it creates three very different characters, right? So all, you know, the three, the six, and the nine are wrestling with the stunting of benevolence, value, and confidence. But the one that's most fundamental for the nine is this feeling of benevolence, feeling like I'm not good enough, right? I'm not as good as I should be. And so what we start to see is that in order to get through life being perceived as good, they act non-offensively or non-intrusively. I don't want to be a burden on people as if to say, well, if I can't be good, at least I'll stay out of the way so I won't bother people. The classic Vices, uh, you know, the classic vice related to the nine is sloth. This does not mean that nines are necessarily physically lazy, right? That's kind of a stereotype of nines that I certainly have not found to be the case. I know that nines, I know nines who just work nonstop, who love to work and work all the time. It has more to do with kind of a psycho-spiritual sloth of not asserting themselves, not putting themselves and their needs out there to the extent that they should. The fixation of the nine is indolence, and indolence means resistance to change. Okay, Don't disrupt my world. Don't pull me out of my cocoon. Don't pull me out of my patterns. Don't make me disrupt things. I don't like that. And the virtue is action, right? So I always think of inertia when I think of nines, and Inertia, people always think of non-movement, right? But what the laws of inertia really say is that a body at rest stays at rest, but a body at motion stays in motion, right? Unless acted upon by another force. And this is something we see in nines as well. When they are engaged and active, they can be really active, right? I mean, they can really go after what they want in life. 
So don't ever assume that, you know, people who are nines are necessarily going to be lazy, you know, do nothing sort of folks. That's just not the reality. So the first movie we're going to talk about is one of my all-time favorite movies, right? I mean, j- just for me, Wonder Boys, I- I've seen it a bunch of times. I'm embarrassed to say I haven't read the book that it's based on. Now, T.J. Dahl, I know you told me that you recently read it, so I'm interested to hear about it. But for me, just kind of what wraps up Wonder Boys for me, or summarizes Wonder Boys for me, is that any movie that throws in a Jean Genet reference without taking the time to explain it is a good movie as far as I'm concerned, right? I mean, I'm, 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 I'm okay with that. I'm bought in, right? So um, how about you guys? Tell me about your reaction to Wonder Boys. I absolutely loved it. I've, I hadn't seen it since I'd watched it that first time, so in 20-plus years. So it was such a joy to watch again. My partner and I watched it. She had never heard of it, much less seen it, and we've been quoting it and laughing ever since. I also think it's wonderful for a movie to be about a writer but it's not about how hard it is to be a writer, although it kind of is, but it isn't. I think that's really interesting. You know, like it's, I find difficult for any work of art to be about trying to create art without it just being indulgent and navel-gazing. And this isn't at all. I found it so entertaining. And I imagine anyway relatable to somebody who's not in the arts. Yeah, and I, I think too what, what it was about more than writing is early success and trying to meet it or top it afterwards, right? It's like that sophomore slump that people always hear about from artists. You know, you 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 spend your whole you know first twenty five years thinking about this novel you're going to write, you know, and then you write it, and now you got to come up with a second one. It's like, oh, geez, I put everything into the first one. So you know, it's a common phenomenon. But uh, you're right; you could have taken you know any um, activity. And sort of put it in there and dealt with the same themes and issues, right? So, um, yeah, I agree. Um, good. So, uh, TJ Ingracia, how about you? What was your reaction to this movie? It was great. Really enjoyed it. I liked the cast. It was a, it was a great ensemble cast. It was fun seeing Robert Downey Jr. in his pre-Iron Man dark days, uh, you know, so that, that was fun. And uh, have you seen the film Uncut Gems with Adam yeah. Sandler? yeah. This film's just, it was a little reminiscent of that for me. Oh, it was sort of like a man who's spiraling downward a little bit, uh, losing control, sort of like one problem after another building on itself. There were no dead dogs in any trunks and uncut gems, but it was, <laughs> it had that sort of same little bit of anxiety producing, like, you know, stop making poor decisions kind of situation yeah you know that's interesting because um uncut gems i tried to rewatch it recently i thought it was a great movie and i really enjoyed it but i started to watch it and the stress level that i felt just watching the adam sandler character it was probably a six in, in that movie right a very six-ish character I, it was almost kind of like um uncut gems is what wonder boys could have been if it was a six in the role right rather than a nine so but that's a good connection i like that all right. So, um, TJ, tell us about Wonder Boys. Give a summary for the listener, and uh, we'll go from there. Yeah, so Wonder Boys was directed by Curtis Hansen, came out in the year 2000, based on a novel by Michael Shaben. And if we haven't made this clear enough already, it's awesome. See it, and you, listener, probably have not, because the movie was a huge flop when it came out, and it has not accrued any cult following since. It's completely obscure, and it's wonderful. It is a diamond in the rough. So, Stop the podcast. Go watch the movie. 
<laughs> with the one caveat that they use a now kind of offensive term for a crossdresser in it. And it's a minor flaw, but otherwise a great movie. So it tells the story of Grady Tripp, played by Michael Douglas, who's a creative writing professor at a Pittsburgh college. He's a huge pothead. His mistress, Sarah, played by Frances McDormand, is the college chancellor and married to Grady's boss in the English department, tells him that she is pregnant at a party at her house for WordFest, which is a big literary festival put on by the college every year. Grady's editor, Terry Crabtree, is in town, played by Robert Downey Jr., and he's hoping to read a draft of Grady's novel, which he's been working on for seven years with no end in sight. And Grady has a number of strange and entertaining adventures with his student, James Lear, played by Tobey Maguire. And by the end of the weekend, Grady has lost pretty much everything, his job, his novel, his marriage. But in an epilogue, we find out that he's actually getting his shit together. He's laid off the chronic pot smoking. He's working on a different new book. And now he's with the chancellor and they're raising the baby that she decided to keep. From the director of L.A. Confidential. Someone jumped on your car with their butt. How can you tell? Well, you can see the outline of a butt. Director Curtis Hansen not only understands the jokes, he knows how to place them in this handsomely mounted, graceful production. I just wanted to stay with you for a little while. I'm a teacher, James. I'm not a holiday in. Paramount Pictures and Mutual Film Company invite you to rediscover the wonder of it all. I lost a wife today. Oh, you'll find another. She'll be young, beautiful. They always are. Wonder Boys is terrific. Man, that book of yours must have been one nutty ride. This movie is pure pleasure. <laughs> Wonder Boys. It was nice the way everything came together because it was somebody spiraling downward and uh, it did pull it all together. And there's a question for you guys because I had never thought about this before up until this last watching uh, because I was thinking about the, the voiceovers, right? I'm always curious about the use of voiceovers in movies. And usually I think it's sort of a structural flaw, right? We have to do a voiceover to explain things that are not clear. Um, but I thought this was a very effective use of voiceovers. And at the end, it occurred to me, oh, this is the book he's writing, right? Uh, which I had never gotten before. I'm thinking, geez, I've seen this movie a bunch of times and uh, it just never occurred to me. So did I interpret that right then? Did you guys see the same thing? Yeah, we don't see him typing the words on the screen that he's saying the way we do with the Richard Dreyfus character at the end of Stand By Me, where it makes absolutely clear that the voiceover in Stand By Me is the novel that he's writing. But yeah, that's what I got out of it. So um, uh, TJ Daw, give us a couple of scenes that were nine-ish. Well, this. it's not so much scenes that occurred to me of nine-ishness, but like a kind of an overall motif that I found a lot of examples of. So one thing is that Grady Tripp is calm and steady throughout, and he's got these muted reactions to a lot of really big shit that happens to him. So in the opening scene, he just casually mentions in voiceover that his wife left him, you know, or, and then pretty soon after we find out that his mistress is pregnant and she's married to his boss. Uh, we find out that his student has stolen Marilyn Monroe's jacket that she wore when she married uh, Joe DiMaggio from the locked closet of Grady's mistress's husband who collects memorabilia mostly related to Joe DiMaggio. So that's worth 20000 some dollars. He finds out that James, his student, has been deceiving him about what his own life is, telling him this hard luck story. He comes home at one point and finds this huge party raging in his house that he, you know, his house guest 
uh, editor put on without asking him. And then he finds that his student, Hannah, who's renting the basement suite in his house, has just helped herself to his unfinished novel without his permission and is reading it and then later gives him negative feedback. His car gets stolen. He gets a gun put to his head. The only copy of his huge novel that he's been working on for seven years scatters to the wind. And with any one of these things, you would expect a normal person to just flip the fuck out. And he just takes it quite straight faced, one thing after another, just kind of absorbing it like, like little darts hitting an elephant that just keeps on going. And he keeps on anesthetizing himself with pot, like he's smoking joints throughout, which I think is a pretty good metaphor for where he is in his life. He's going through the motions. Yeah. He doesn't seem to do any real teaching in his class. He supervises feedback from his fellow students. He doesn't voice his own opinions. He's just sunk into this comfortable rut. And same with the writing that he's doing. It just seems to me like a car that's spinning its wheels. Uh, one synopsis, not a synopsis, but one, uh, I was reading some reviews about the film and I thought this paragraph was a perfect analysis of the film, but also a connection to type nine. It said, one of the challenges for director Curtis Hansen was to take a plot that, as he put it, is meandering and apparently sort of aimless and a character that does things that even he doesn't really know why he's doing them and to try to create a feeling of focus to keep the audience interested. And that sounds like what you would try to do if someone's working with an unhealthy nine, this is exactly what you would try to do. Wandering, aimless, you don't really know what you're doing and try to find some focus in your life. Yeah. And that's what this film is all about. And his his book, the, the book that he was uh, working on was another reflection of that, right? He originally thought it would be uh, you know, 350 pages. And as he starts typing, it's page 2,611, right? <laughs> and he said, I feel like I see the ending in sight, but it keeps getting further away. And I love the way um, the Katie Holmes character, Hannah, you know, gave him feedback at the end. She said, you know how you're always telling us we need to make choices? Seems like you didn't make any choices here. And this is one of the big challenges for nines is this unwillingness to decide. Okay, And it's very different from the... Um, the unwillingness to decide that we'll see in sevens, right? Sevens want to keep their options open, right? I might miss out on something. Whereas with nines, it's really, it's very different because once I commit to something, I'm taking a firm stance. And once I take a firm stance, I subject myself to potential conflict, right? Um, well, if I make a firm statement about anything, somebody might disagree with it. Somebody might not think it's the right one, that I'm not valuable, that I'm not good. You know, all these insecurities will come up. So it's a very different thing, a very different reason for a similar behavior around choices. And in this movie, it's just a lot of stuff happening to this guy, right? Rather than him having agency in his own life. Mario, can you talk about the difference between, so all the things that TJ talked about, what you just said, all these things are happening to him and he's sort of absorbing it and taking it and not freaking out like a lot of people would. That could be a really healthy way to handle life or also a really unhealthy way. You know, in a healthy way, you're self-actualized, you're calm, you're able to, before you react, you analyze and don't freak out. But also sort of the stereotype of an unhealthy nine is like, you're almost like a ghost, like you're sleepwalking through your life. So how do you differentiate between when it's healthy and when it's unhealthy? Yeah. So it's always for me about the results that any behavior gets, right? Does my behavior, my action, my thought, 
my emotional reaction lead to me being happier and more content and the people around me being happier and more content and me being more efficacious or does it cause me more trouble or not right so it's not you know you you can't really make hard decisions about you know or even assume that any of the strategies for example are either good or bad it's all about does it get positive healthy results or negative unhealthy results right that's the only way we can do it so avoidance of decisions you know there can be times when that's good right um but very often it's not necessarily a good thing this nonplussed quality it's a great thing and again it's one of the reasons why nines often rise to leadership positions right because they stay calm when everybody else around them is freaking out okay um but what the, the criticism i always hear of pretty much every nine leader i work with is you know sometimes he, he needs to make a decision about things right so there's that you know everything's on a continuum and finding that right spot on the continuum is what's really important, whether it be about making decisions or our emotional, you know, calmness, etc. Did did that help? Did I answer your question? Yeah, I think so. And that's true of every type. Absolutely. You know, your, your your greatest strength is always your greatest weakness, depending Absolutely. on how you use it. Absolutely. And in this particular story, a lot of the situations that he's in are because of his inaction. Yes. Like he's driving what we later find out is a stolen car that was given to him as a payment for a debt from a friend. And, you know, he just casually says, yeah, like it, he never did get the deed or maybe yeah, that's in the, the novel, title, not yeah. the movie, but yeah. like he just never looked into it. Right. Yeah. And then same with his novel. You know, I can't think of a single published novel that's 2,600 pages plus. <laughs> so the fact that it's taken him seven years of, of just grinding away at the typewriter and not writing this thing and not being honest with his editor. I mean, that's what an editor's for. Help me bang this thing into shape. That was another seven-ish thing. I'm sorry, not seven-ish thing. Another nine-ish thing about the character was his fuzziness. You, you know, when Crabtree, the Robert Downey uh, Jr. character, uh, the editor, was asking him, so I'm going to get to see the novel, right? It's almost done, et cetera. He was like, well, yeah, 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 sure, you know, yeah, well, yeah, kind of. We've got a couple of things to work out still, right? And so nines are great at throwing up these fuzzy smoke screens about things and not having that conversation that could lead to conflict. Okay, of you know what the, the the book's crap. I need help, right? Wow, geez, they're gonna hate me if I say that, you know. So I can't. So, but you're right. You made a great point there, TJ, about the um, the problems all being due to his lack of um, active agency about things in this world. And there were even times when he would want to say something to the uh, Francis McDormand. Was it, was it Francis McDormand? Sarah. Yes, yeah, Sarah. Thank you. Um, uh, he would want to say something to Sarah, you know, he'd have to deliver this bad news and he would kind of gird himself up to do it. And then she would sidetrack him and it was almost a relief. You, know, you could sense, oh good, I don't have to say this the thing to her, you know. So, all right. Or he hangs up on her at one point. That's <laughs> <laughs> pretty nine-ish. I don't want to deal with this with right. Because he says, can you hold on for a minute? And then just gently hangs up. He doesn't like right slam the phone down and you know say something <laughs> yeah. vicious not even i'll call you back right it's <laughs> <laughs> like i'm just gonna check out now yeah and so this idea of checking out is another motif right you know we talk about sloth this falling asleep to ourselves that's represented a point nine and what is one of the things that vexes him through the movie is these feigning spells 
right? Every time he gets close to having to make a decision or take some action or move himself forward, he literally passes out, right? And and my favorite, you know, metaphor is that he wears a, an old bathrobe around the house, right? You know, I mean, talk about somebody sleepwalking through life. You know, he's <laughs> literally wearing a bathrobe. So it's great stuff. All right. He also smokes up before he writes. And that's another thing is you would expect a movie or a story about a writer who can't write his novel to be somebody who's got writer's block, but he says he doesn't believe in it. Yeah. What does he do? He sucks on a joint, puts on his bathrobe, sits at the typewriter and writes. Yes. He writes seemingly every day, even during LitFest when he's got house guests, you'd think that would be a good excuse not to write that day. Nope. Sits there, bangs away. But again, it's wheel spinning. He's not really doing anything. He's no closer to the end than he was before he sat down to write. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, after the car, uh, that was such a funny scene when Robert Downey Jr. crashes the car and the pages go flying out in the wind. And then he's running around grabbing one or two pages while the other 2,000 pages are scattered into the river. But then when they're on the car ride back uh, to drop him off, I think, I forget if it was Vernon or uh, Ula asks him what his book was about. And he says, I don't know. Right. Like he wrote, you know, over 2,000 pages and he can't even tell you what it's about. Right. Right, and 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 Vernon Hardapple's response. Uh, let me see if I can find this because I highlighted here. So she says, "What was the book about?" And he says, "I don't know." And Vernon says, "Well, then why were you writing it?" And he said, "But like because I couldn't stop." Right? And so, and there, that's the inertia you were talking ex- about. Exactly right. Exactly right. Inertia, although activity as well. And there's this slight difference between how Riso Hudson parsed the virtue of nine, which they said activity. Sounds good, yeah. but you know, as with Grady as an example, you could be very active and not doing anything. Yes. You could be active as a way to avoid things. So the word that they use is engagement. And to me, the overall arc of this story is the arc from going through the motions to engagement. He's doing a lot of checking out for a lot of not only what we see in the, just the few days that this movie takes place in, but in his life in general. And by the end, he really has committed to Sarah. And... In the final scene, he's the one that that yells out, "Take a bow, James!" And you know he gets rid of his bag of pot. He almost faints, but he doesn't. And then when we see him in the epilogue, sitting at his computer, he's got a shorter haircut and he's not dressed in his bathrobe to write. And he's he's actually committed to his life. Right, right. He's I don't think any more active than he was before. He's still writing like he was before, but the difference in the quality of the activity is fundamental yes yeah you're you're absolutely right so the 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 thing to keep in mind with nines is around narcotization okay of how do i dull my experience so that i don't you know so that i can because what's happening with nine i you know i talked earlier about how they are not wanting to impose okay i don't feel good i don't feel valuable i don't feel like i have what it takes to survive in this world so how do i deal with that i stay out of the way but then i start to get frustrated that i'm being ignored right i start to get frustrated that i'm not being paid attention to and valued for my accomplishments like when he when she gave him the feedback on his novel and he started saying you know well i did win you know the 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 pen award and i did that while i was high and you know he's kind of defending himself and you know boasting almost in a defensive way it was a very common thing we see with nice but that act that activity like you said can be narcotizing 
um, in, in a way, TJ, right? So you'll see nines who love to do crossword puzzles or puzzles in general or, you know, mindless sort of activities that just, you know, it's doing something, but it's keeping me disengaged. Okay. Puttering. Puttering. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Um, let's talk about James for a moment here. So the Tobey Maguire character. Um so we talked about Tobey Maguire in our last one, that he was kind of the, uh, the inspiration for uh, one of the characters. Um, but I thought he was fantastic in this. Um, thoughts on his Enneagram type? Four jumped out to me. Did it? Uh-huh. How about you, TJ? Uh, maybe some combination of four and five somewhere in there, but he certainly seems to have like the stereotypical sort of dark, morose affect of the four. Yeah. I, did, I actually saw him as a five. Right. I saw him as a navigating five and um, the rationale for that. Right. I mean, there is this sort of, you know, these things that we associate with four of being kind of an outcast and a loner and all that sort of stuff. But I thought what was really the uh, the theme that was driving James was one of detachment, right, of going into his head. Okay. He wasn't a particularly emotional person. There, there was that one moment when he was, you know, getting teary on the um, about the the Maryland thing. But it struck me as, you know, again, the loneliness. And I think loneliness is something that fives can struggle with because of the detachment and isolation they have. Um, he even there was that scene where he listed all of the um, uh, actors, the suicides, right? And Robert Downey says to him, you did them in alphabetical order, you know? And he goes, yeah, I guess that's just the way my mind works, right? So there was a very cerebral quality and he was creating this, you know, this world all in his head, right? So uh, for me, James felt kind of five-ish, um, but, uh, you, you know, um, force, you know, is not unreasonable, I think. Um, so and it was like a navigating five. So I've known a number of navigating fives who are kind of quirky collectors of things. So uh, let's see. I'm trying to think if there were any other um, uh, parts of this. Uh, clearly, the uh, there were some great one line sort of things. One you know, or, or kind of bits. I would say, TJ, you mentioned uh, uh, him staying calm in the in the midst of you know, catastrophe or calamity. Uh, one of my favorite non-reactions or muted reactions was when James um, tries to wash down the codeine tablet with uh, whiskey and ends up <laughs> spitting it onto, onto Professor Tripp's lapel. And, and, and Michael Douglas barely blinks, you know, and then just calmly reaches down and takes it off. So um, great. And gives it back gives to him. Gives it back to Want to try that again? Uh, something else I wanted to go back to um, that just popped into my mind, something one of you guys said uh, earlier. One of the things that helps nines grow is uh, what I call generativity, right? It's this idea of helping the next generation, right? It's of selflessly giving to the other, not in a passive sort of way, right? Not in a way that they're going to end up resenting, but in a way that says, I'm going to help you benefit from my experience and my growth. And I think Wonder Boys is a really good example of that in a character and it being a part of the growth of the one who is doing, you know, the, the mentoring, you know, and the, uh, the, the investing in the others. And um, there was that part at the end where once, uh, he, you know, he tells James to take a bow and then kind of mutters to himself, a wonder boy, right? So it's just that idea of I've passed this title on to you. 
So a real nice reflection of something that is really a healthy behavior for nines to do. All right, good. So anything else about Wonder Boys? Great movie. Anything we didn't say that we need to about it? One thing I just want to emphasize is the book is awesome. And it's full of nuggets that that might have been part of the inspiration for um, some of the voiceover just because there's so many pearls in it. And I'll just read one. It's describing James's overcoat. The overcoat was a trademark of his. It was an impermeable thrift shop special with a plaid flannel lining and wide lapels, and it looked as though it had been trying for many years to keep the rain off the stooped shoulders of a long series of hard cases, drifters, and ordinary bums. It emitted an odor of bus station so desolate that just standing next to him, you could feel your luck changing for the worse. It's a great, great read. It's super quick. It helped me fall in love with Michael Shaban as a writer who I believe is a transmitting nine. I've heard a great interview with him on NPR Fresh Air, and he's self-deprecating to a fault. And he's got a wonderful autobiographical volume called Manhood for Amateurs, which is about his experiences as a father, which again is full of self-deprecating humor. And he's also got just all the talent in the world. I think he's a shining star of the literary world. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't read enough of his where I have all of his books on my shelf and haven't got them, but I read some of his short stories in Esquire magazine back in the eighties and just thought this guy is a talent, you know, so really, really good writer. Um, I also want to do a quick shout out to, uh, Curtis Hansen, the director, because I think this is a really well-directed movie. It's paced really well. It's shot really well. It captures, uh, the city of Pittsburgh it uses the city of Pittsburgh really effectively. I thought, you know, he did a great job at creating um, a sense of place. And, you know, Curtis Hansen, I think, had just come off of uh, L.A. Confidential, which is another of my all-time favorite movies. And, uh, T.J., you mentioned what a box office disappointment this was. I mean, it was, a, it was considered to be a big failure, and they had to really fight to get financing for this in the first place. When you look at the list of, um, you know, sources of financing and, you know, who was involved in releasing and so forth, I mean, it, it's just a really long list because they had to work hard to get this movie made. And it ended up being a failure. It cost, I think, $55 million to make. It only made $33 million in the box office. But it's it's an underappreciated gem. And I think it... I think it really hurt Curtis Hansen's career too, because he didn't really. He, he did a couple of movies that were pretty decent. After he did Eight Mile, Eight Mile, which I later. thought was great, but yeah. but a very low budget movie, right? Comparatively speaking, okay, it was you know it uh, it was not a uh, huge gamble financially. So, uh, but yeah, I agree. Eight Miles, a, a really good movie. I thought. So, all right. Um, okay. So let's wrap up our appreciation of Wonder Boys. And again, uh, if you haven't yet taken TJ's advice and gone and stopped the podcast and watched the movie, uh, now's another good time to do it. If you want to find out more about my work with the Enneagram and organizations of all kinds or our certification programs, visit me at mariosecura.com or follow me on social media. Hi, I'm TJ Daw, and I do one-on-one consulting on creative projects of all kinds, as well as Enneagram coaching. I teach an online course on how to create your own one-person show, and I speak at events and perform shows of my own. For more information, go to my website, www.tjdawe.ca. This is TJ Ingracia. To check out my YouTube series, Typecast, which explores the Enneagram through film and television, 
go to youtube.com slash typecast. And if you're interested in my professional video production services, check out tjangracia.com. So what do we have next? We have next Four Weddings and a Funeral. Uh, who's going to tell us about Four Weddings and a Funeral, TJ? Okay. Four Weddings and a Funeral is the 1994 British romantic comedy film following the story of Charles, played by Hugh Grant, a young and charming man who attends a series of four weddings and one funeral, obviously, over the course of several months. At the first wedding, Charles meets Carrie, played by Andy McDowell, an American woman who he's immediately attracted to. Charles and Carrie keep bumping into each other at subsequent events, but their timing always seems to be off. The film explores the different relationships and experiences of the eclectic group of friends as they navigate love, friendship, and loss. Charles and Carrie's relationship becomes more complicated as they struggle to admit their feelings for each other, and the film culminates in a fifth event where Charles must finally confront his true feelings for Carrie. The film was a surprise critical and commercial success, receiving multiple awards and nominations, including an Oscar nomination for Best Picture, and is considered one of the most iconic romantic comedies of the 90s. There are one or two things you need for a successful wedding. Tact. So, John, how's that, how's that gorgeous girlfriend of yours? Uh, she's no longer my girlfriend. Ah, dear. Still, I wouldn't get too gloomy about it. Rumor has it she never stopped bonking old Toby Delisle, just in case you didn't work out. She is now my wife. A discreet best man. When Bernard told me he was getting engaged to Lydia, I congratulated him because all his other girlfriends have been such complete dogs. <laughs> Although, may I say how, how, how delighted we are to have so many of them here this evening. <laughs> Hugh Grant and Andy McDowell invite you to Four Weddings and a Funeral from the creators of Enchanted April and Black Adder. May almighty God bless you all, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Spirit. This was, um, box office-wise, this was pretty much the inverse of Wonder Boys, right? Because this movie was made for $4.5 million and ended up making $245 million at the box office Jeez. in 1997. <laughs> Might be the greatest box office spread of all time. It, it really is big. And we're talking about, what, $1994 as well. So that's a whole lot of money. Um, you know, famously, um, Andy McDowell waived most of her fee and took it on back-end points and ended up making a few million dollars again in 1994 dollars. Uh, so it was a very, very big movie, a very, very successful movie, and it launched Hugh Grant as a massive, massive star at the time. So, um, so it, it makes it all the more remarkable for a movie with pretty much an unknown in the lead to go the distance like that. Yes, it's a Hollywood Cinderella story for sure. And, and not a Hollywood movie. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, yeah. I, lightning in a bottle for sure. Right. I mean, it really was a, a, a big, big hit and initially only released on three theaters in the U S I think uh, a real small handful, but it did so well in those theaters that they invested money into uh, promoting it and it did really well. Um, so um, TJ and Grassi, what was nine ish about this movie, particularly what was, we're kind of going to focus on um, Carrie Andy McDowell's character. Uh, but what was nine about this movie? Sure. Well, the main thing that jumped out to me was uh, one of the things you, you talk about the blind spot of the nine being passive aggressiveness. And she struck me as a super passive aggressive character. So at the first wedding, 
Carrie and Charles sort of bump into each other. He tries to talk to her, gets interrupted, and, you know, they she wanders off. Then at the end of the reception, as things are winding down, she comes up to him to uh, to ask where he's staying. And he says, oh, I was going to stay at this inn. Uh, I forget what it's called, the the boatman or something like that. And uh, But now I'm going to stay with some friends. And she says, oh, that's a shame because I was going to stay at the boatman. And then, you know, something like, oh, well, it was great almost meeting you. See you later. And she's going to wander off. And he says, oh, no, stay. I, you know, we can let's meet each other now. We, you know, the evening's just getting going. And she says, oh, I think we both know that's a big lie and sort of wanders off. But I get the sense she's setting the trap for him. Like she knows exactly what she's doing. And then she does it again at the second wedding after she's already engaged to somebody else. At the end of that wedding, her fiance has left, you know, taken the train back to Scotland. So she says, oh, keep me company for the evening. And he's kind of skeptical, and but he goes along with her anyway. Then the taxi pulls up to her hotel, and she says, oh, you want to come up and have a nightcap? And he's again, is like, I don't know if that's such a good idea. And she says, I think I can resist you. You're not that cute. And then immediately the next scene, you know, cut to them in bed together the next morning. So there's a, I mean, that's what passive aggressiveness is. There's like a passive assertiveness where she knows exactly what she's doing. And then the thing that was sort of infuriating to me, the final wedding or, you know, half of a wedding, I guess we'll call it. It's his, Charles's wedding. And uh, he's marrying Henrietta because he's, he's really in love with Carrie, but he's sort of settling for Henrietta. Carrie shows up at his wedding and is basically like, oh, by the way, I'm single now. Have a nice life. <laughs> like, thanks, Carrie. Could you not have shown up maybe the day before the wedding? You know, she's very clearly insinuating like, well, I'm single now. I'm here. So continue with your wedding if you want. But I'm just going to hang out over here if you want to do something different. So uh, and, you know, whatever. They're playing it up for the comedic value and all that. But it just, it, yeah, she just struck me as a very passive aggressive character which is a can be a classic nine trait yeah well i would parse the term to another one that you used which is more passive assertion than passive yeah. aggression because she doesn't have aggressive feelings you know like i'm or at least i'm used to thinking of the term more towards the way somebody would relate to an antagonist or someone they don't like whereas clearly she does like him but just within her nine-ishness it's not okay to say it or act on it but she just keeps showing up as if everything's fine as if everything's normal. So when she shows up, you know, as you mentioned, and she's engaged and he sees her and lights up and doesn't realize that she's engaged, she just acts as if it's normal when he comes back with a drink and she just casually introduces him to her fiance. Like, <laughs> like this is the most normal thing in the world. Why would Nothing it not to see be? here. No big deal. <laughs> and then at one point, you know, he makes his, she, she invites him to go watch her try on various wedding outfits. And then they part seemingly on good terms. But then his brother says, what the hell are you doing? You know, so he impulsively runs after her and makes this nervous, stuttering overture of love. And she just stands there and takes it. And then when he apologizes, she, she says no, that she appreciates it. She's glad that he says it. It was very romantic. So it's very, you know, she, she's just so nice and easygoing, even when that seems like really the wrong 
thing that's needed in a given situation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Did you guys get the David Cassidy reference? I'm just curious, given your age. Oh, yeah. TJ Dahl, you did. Uh, TJ and Grazi, did you get the David? No, that's a little before my time. <laughs> yeah, so, so there was a TV show back in my, when I was a child, called The Partridge Family. And uh, David Cassidy was the heartthrob uh, star of that. And uh, their most famous song was, I Think I Love You. So it was, again, a very... Reference that won't resonate with uh, a lot of people these days, but that's where that's coming from. So, um, and a pretty funny thing to come out of his mouth as he's making his kind of hail mary of like, yes, let's see if we can make this work. I know you're engaged, but I just have to tell you this. And then references David Cassidy like blatantly. <laughs> right, right. So, so yeah, I I think Andy McDowell is the uh, Tom Cruise of female nines, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Right. So, you know, and and what I mean here is like we talked about last time, you look up Enneagram type nines in the, you know, in the, uh, the Enneagram Bible and uh, you're going to see uh, Tom Cruise's, I'm sorry, Enneagram threes and you're going to see Tom Cruise's picture. And Andy McDowell, I don't know anything about her in real life, but she certainly plays nines in almost everything. And even her affect is just this breathy sort of thing, right? This... <sighs> She, it's like she's sighing every time she talks almost, right? So, um, you know, and it was certainly on display on this and covered up some behavior that was shocking almost, right? Like when they're doing their body counts in the cafe, right? And she's, you know, counting her way up to 32 or 33 and she's up to number six by the time she's 17. And she says, oh, well, I just, you know, grew up in farm country and, you know, a lot of watching animals and stuff. And we... Ooh, wow. Um, so, <laughs> so, I think it was rolling around in haystacks. Uh, round, I don't know that you mentioned the watch. <laughs> I'm thinking of my own youth. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm, I'm conflating. You're thinking of Hugh Grant's uh, sheep reference in his wedding speech. <laughs> you go. Right. So, uh, so um, yeah. So there was like this kind of out of the blue, um, you know, assertiveness you know, and even her going after him, like well, like you just talked about, TJ, uh, that's hidden by this, you know, sort of, oh, what was me, sort of breathiness. Um, very much a nine-ish character. Um, and invites him to her own wedding. It's like, that's a little odd. We slept together while I was engaged twice. Come to the wedding. Everything is fine. Because I want it to be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Why would anybody be upset about this? It was kind of the mindset. One thing that I thought was an interesting connection is I thought the scene where she shows up at his wedding sort of reminded me of the scene in Wonder Boys where uh, Grady calls up Sarah's husband yeah. at 3.30 in the morning and says, oh, by the way, I'm in love with your wife. Sort of like this buildup of like... You know, inaction, 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 and then snapping all of a sudden and doing this big, it's like, whoa, that's a, you know, maybe you should slow down a little <laughs> right, bit here. Right. And, but so that just, that, that, and that seems like that can be a nine ish thing, maybe. Absolutely. Talk about and that. I, absolutely. And that's a really great observation, a good point. And it's also when uh, Grady kind of freaks out in the back of Vernon Hardapple's car of, you know, just stop, stop, I don't want to hear it anymore, right? Kind of thing. So a classic sort of thing with nines is they, let things go and they let things go and then they explode right in fact the movie falling down with michael douglas 
is just a great example of that. A guy who has just been, you know, crapped on and crapped on and then just goes nuts and starts shooting everybody. Um, you know, back in, you know, the 80s and 90s when going postal was a thing, right? You know, it was nines who just had it up to here, you know, and just said, I can't take it anymore. You know, I'm a firm believer that, you know, a massively disproportionate number of people who work for the post office are probably nines, right? Because who else <laughs> could do that job, right? And, you know, and they just get, would get to a point and it's like, I can't take this anymore. I'm going to shoot some fools. So, um, <laughs> Helen Palmer has said as much, by the way. Oh, really? Oh, in her, interesting. In her book, The Enneagram, she, as an example of type nine, she lists the U.S. Postal Service. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> and the phenomenon of like the sign on the door saying that they close at 4.30 and somebody walking up right at 4.29 as the person slowly walks up and turns the lock right in front of you. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and I, again, I, I think this whole movie was about people not making choices again right or people having the world make choices for them and then realizing i got boxed into this corner and i need to just snap out of it somehow right so it's him you know not professing his love to her or you know or not pursuing her and that sort of thing and then running after her madly and quoting david cassidy and you know all these sort of things uh, which brings us to and i think we should talk about this the hugh grant character right because we had a little bit of an exchange on this uh, prior to uh, recording and um tj and gracia you uh, share with us your thoughts on the hugh grant character here well he seemed uh he just he also seemed very nine-ish to me like just in the sense that he's so passive and just letting you know life happen to him both time the, the two times that they sleep together the first time she wakes up and leaves, she says goodbye, and he doesn't—he doesn't respond. He doesn't say anything to her. Then the second time, he gets up and leaves, and basically just walks out without really saying any kind of goodbye. And so there's just this—I don't know—just extreme passivity that I felt. Now that's not to say that other tight, you know, nines don't have the the market cornered on passivity or inaction necessarily, but uh, he just struck me as having some nine-ish stuff going on. Yeah. And uh, T.J. Dahl, your thoughts on that? Yeah, he's really got a six-ish affect in terms of he's nervous, he's stuttering, this hesitating speaking style. And he's in a bunch of what seemed to me, as I watched it the second time, occurred to me, six nightmare society uh, scenarios, which is like, what if I say the wrong thing to the wrong person? Like telling a man that his ex had been cheating on him before I find out that they're married now? Or what if I were to be seated at a table with all of my exes at the same time and they all repeat all the stories I told them about each other? What if I fall in love with somebody at first sight and she's engaged? What if my true love were only available and I start to find out as I'm about to walk down the aisle? So he's got a lot of these things that, mind you, we don't see him cogitating these things beforehand. We don't see him do that classic six thing of forecasting disaster. But it's He's in a lot of situations that are like that. And then he's, there's a couple of moments where he just suddenly takes impulsive action. Like when the car is going off to the rich friend Tom's country house and he just suddenly asks to be let out and he's going to change his mind. He's going to stay at the pub where he knows Carrie is going to be. And they drop him off in the middle of nowhere and he's just kind of left there like, uh, oh, okay, I did that. Or when he, like we talked about, pursues Carrie and makes this stuttering overture to her quoting David Cassidy and then 
cuts himself off before she has a chance to respond verbally in any way, just immediately kind of negates his own overture. So there's a lot of like the attack retreat that I'm used to seeing in sixes. Yeah. So my view on this, because I, I agree with both of you here. Okay. And, um, it had never occurred to me that this character was anything other than a, maybe a six or a seven, right? Because I haven't seen this movie in a long time before watching it. I did see it, you know, before and a couple of times, but I hadn't watched it in a long time. And in my mind, it was always, you know, some six, seven, you know, kind of character. Um, but the nine thing did strike me rewatching it this time. And it felt to me almost as if there was a mismatch between some of the writing you know some events in the script and the expression of the character and an inconsistency in how the character was written because again you know for me most of his trouble was around indecision but not so much oh should I do this should I do that but if I do this then that'll happen etc it was just an unwillingness to assert oneself okay an unwillingness to say no I want that and therefore I'm going to go after it Okay. So that for me felt nine-ish, okay? but his affect was clearly not nine-ish. So you do have to wonder if she was that great a catch after all, right? Because she had had a history of a lot of relationships, right? And, you know, getting married and then not being happy. And you got to wonder if, you know, for me, okay, well, there's a track record here of somebody making bad, bad choices regarding relationships and the, you know, the, the, the lasting nature of them. But, but she is Andy McDowell on the other hand. So 50, yeah. <laughs> 50 yeah. then. Yeah. At the end of the film, I really felt like I don't have a lot of hope for this right. couple because unlike in wonder boys, there didn't really seem to be a sense of like learning and growth and genuine change. It's just sort of like, Oh, these two, Okay, they're going to try this for a while, but I don't think either of them have really learned anything or, or you know, have improved themselves in any way. So history's going to repeat itself, I would guess. Right, right. Well, there hasn't been a sequel, so we haven't been able to find out. <laughs> <laughs> Although Notting Hill was pretty close to it, um, you know, in, in some ways. Um, let's see. Okay, so uh, a couple of things I, wa I want to talk about, first of all, uh, before we um, leave this movie. I have to say... I didn't like it as much as I remembered liking it upon rewatching it, right? I mean, uh, it was a big, big hit, and it was really well-reviewed. I think the Rotten Tomatoes score is 94. Um, for me, watching it this time, and it may just be because I'm older and more jaded, um, it seemed almost a bit pandering, right? Almost a bit, you know, obvious in a lot of the jokes, a lot of the humor. Um a couple of things I really did appreciate about it was the the most healthy relationship in the movie was between two men, right? Uh, Gareth and Matthew, um, which I thought was really, really well done. And you got to remember, this is 1994, right? This is Bill Clinton, don't ask, don't tell kind of era. And they're showing a really tender... Um, relationship between two men uh, just as normal part of life right I mean it wasn't um, it wasn't something that was you know like birdcage where it was all about oh look at this we're talking about gay guys you know kind of thing right it was just 
you know, no, these are just people fitting in with us. So I really, really respected that, again, particularly for the time. That's kind of normal now, but back then it wasn't, right? I mean, I, I can tell you back then that was, that was a bold move, and I thought it was really impressive that they did that. And I thought, too, the... Uh, uh, the character Matthew, the, uh, played by John Hanna, who is a guy like I, f I feel like I've seen in a million places. But when I started looking at his IMDb page, I'm thinking I haven't seen any of those movies, you know. So that's exactly what I did. <laughs> right. So, uh, but I thought he was just fantastic, and um, the scene of Gareth's funeral, I think, was tremendously moving. I mean, really, really well done, and that guy uh, acted that scene. Uh, tremendously so i i just want to give a you know a, a shout out to that because i thought it was really really fantastic so um any other thoughts on four weddings and a funeral before we wrap up a couple other characters struck me as kind of nine-ish one was tom the friend who's really rich he's the nicest super rich guy i've ever seen in a movie and describes his own wealth like he's describing his collection of bottle caps and same with bernard who you know when we first meet him is kind of makes this really shy, passive overture to another person at the wedding. Well, I mean, if you fancy anything, I could always, and Lydia says to him, oh, don't be ridiculous. I'm not that desperate. <laughs> and he takes that with aplomb. He's not offended in the slightest. And then, of course, a scene later, they're making out. And then not too long later, they're married. And then Tom is the best man at that wedding. And he makes this inadvertently really rude wedding <laughs> toast, which Bernard just takes with a straight face. He's not pleased about it, but he's not doesn't get his back up he doesn't say anything so he's he's very passive and nice in that way as well scarlet possibly also a nine too she's had this quirky way of dressing but she sings along to the hymns even though she's a terrible singer and she remarks that the bride looks lovely and kind of like matthew she's also just kind of there right and then the overall ending the epilogue of this movie is a sequence of photos different wedding photos and everybody finds love everybody gets married. There's a happy ending for everybody, particularly for Henrietta who got left at the altar. We don't have to feel bad about that. She found somebody else to love her. Everything's good. So the whole notion of happy endings got me thinking this thing that William Goldman wrote about in a couple of his books. He parses movies into two categories, Hollywood movies and independent movies. In a different book he calls it comic book movies versus art movies. He says, Hollywood movies tell us the truth we want to hear. Independent movies or art movies tells the truth we don't want to hear. And this movie's theme is that love conquers all. It's available to everyone. Everyone is worthy of love. Everyone will find their perfect partner, which is the reassuringness that has a really nine vibe to it. It's like this movie is here not to disturb you. It's to reassure you. It's comfort food. It's cinematic comfort food. Yeah, that, that's a really good point. And um, it, it is that sort of happy ending wrap it all up in a neat bow sort of thing um if you think too much into it you know like is it going to work between Cara, carrie and charles uh you might start to have some questions but it doesn't give you the space to ask those questions right uh, because it just wraps it all up very nicely and again this is something i see very often in nines they just want you know nice movies with a nice ending where everything's pleasant everything's happy and you know People go on about their lives. So, um, uh, TJ, usually wrap us up with, um, you know, some thoughts on the type in movies. So what do you got for us this time? Yeah, just to reiterate, romantic comedies in general, uh, science fiction, and not so much science fiction, more as space opera, where the rules of science are just thrown out the door so that we can 
go into this great expanse and have fun. And George Lucas had an employee take the Enneagram Institute training and report what they learned back to him. And he used that and self-identified as a nine. Fantasy, particularly medieval fantasy, is generally pretty nine-ish. I wouldn't say so much Game of Thrones, which has a certain level of brutality in it, as well as sex. But Lord of the Rings is very nine-ish. And I don't know enough about him to say this for sure, but I wouldn't be surprised if Peter Jackson's a nine. Uh, Light comedy in general, family comedies. Walt Disney famously was a nine, or at least as is generally typed as one. Musicals, particularly classic movie musicals. And most television in the 20th century, in all genres, is there to reassure, to give us something familiar, to wrap things up in a limited amount of time. Literally the only exception to this I could think of was Twin Peaks. And I think any movie or TV show that you watch repeatedly kind of gets into that territory. So that even if it's something disturbing like a horror movie or Alien, you know what you're going to get. You know exactly what's going to happen. You return to it like you return to a, a comfortable old sweater of like, I'm, I've had a really hard day, so I want to watch my favorite thing because that's going to give me what I want. You just named all the forms of entertainment I dislike. So. <laughs> Coincidence? <laughs> If I want to shake the screen and tell people to take action, I can't imagine what's going through your mind. Yeah, it's it's funny because, you know, this is one of the reasons why I don't, there's multiple reasons why I don't go for the wing thing. Uh, but uh, one of them is because I've got not an ounce of nine in me, right? I mean, there's just no, it, it, the, the nine just, I, I love nines, okay? I've got a son who's a nine, my father-in-law's a nine, my mother's a nine. I love them all, but boy, oh boy, do they make me nuts sometimes, right? And just, <laughs> you know, and this inability to make a decision about things just drives me crazy, you know? So, um, anyway, um, <laughs> but good observation. Anything else, TJ? Uh, just a few specific movies that I absolutely love that I think are really good movies that showcase the arc of a nine. Secrets and Lies, the British movie, late 90s. The Station Agent and The Visitor both of which are directed by Tom McCarthy. And The Visitor is has Richard Jenkins as the lead actor, who's a character actor who, if you Google him, you'll know him. It's like, oh, it's that guy. He's one of those guys. A, and he's a classic bad guy. he's always good. Yeah. yeah, he's just a brilliant actor. And this, he uncharacteristically has a lead role as a professor who's kind of gathering dust. And I, w- I won't say any more about that. But again, like I hold that movie at the same plane that I hold Wonder Boys. Uh, Emily. Wonder Woman and Being There. Hmm. Oh, being There, yeah. Being There is one of the greats. And I think the phenomenon of the character actor in general, you know, and this is, uh, there's a novel by Robertson Davies called Fifth Business, which is in the running for the great Canadian novel. And the term, which is explained to the main character at the end of the novel, is a term from opera about somebody who plays a minor role in operas, the uncle or the landlord or somebody like that. They're not the lead, they're not the antagonist, but they have some vital piece. And without them, the whole plot wouldn't complete. And the singers who play these roles quite often have longer careers than the leads. And I would say the same thing about character actors. So Richard Jenkins being a perfect example. When you're a character actor, your viability as an actor doesn't depend on you being young and hot or popular or being in the public eye. You're just doing good work good solid work. You don't mind having the one scene role or the supporting role or whatever it is. You do that. You do it very well. You're easy to work with. 
crews like you, directors like you, other actors like you, and they tend to have really long careers. And in music, I'd say the same thing about session musicians. You know, they can adapt to any style. They can work with anybody. They don't need the spotlight. They're very good at what they do, and they're not arrogant about it. I completely agree with everything you said. Uh, I also um, don't want to forget that there are some major, major stars who are nines, right? Like Clint Eastwood, for example, jumps to mind, right? And all or those- Jimmy Stewart. Jimmy Stewart, right? And all those things you said about the way people think of nines is certainly how people think of Clint Eastwood, right? If you remember that documentary we talked about before, everybody loved the guy, loved working for him, easygoing, nice, kind, thoughtful, et cetera, et cetera, and a huge, huge star, right? So- uh, but yeah, I, I completely agree with what you said. Great stuff. All right, very good. Okay, so we have exhausted the Type 9, and uh, we are going to talk about the Type 6. We usually don't tell where we're going next because we usually haven't decided. Um, but, um, uh, you know, we are going to finish out our 396 cycle uh, because we do see them as related types. So we will see you next time, folks. Thanks for listening to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast. Be sure to join us for the next exciting episode. In the meantime, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe, and join us on social media.